Father, when we contemplate your greatness and your glory, we just feel so small to the point of insignificance, looking across the vastness of the universe that is your creation. And yet through Jesus Christ, our Lord, you have lifted us up. We are not small, nor are we insignificant. We are a precious, precious joy for your Son such that he gave his life that we might have lived, that we might have life. We thank you for that, Father. Lord, we ask as we continue before you today that our hearts, our minds would be open to your greatness. We would see the things that you've laid out before us, pathway that we should walk in order to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Our... uh, our little Ebenezer corner over here is growing. There's an antediluvian jawbone there. If you don't know what antediluvian is, it doesn't mean against diluvius, whatever that is. It means pre-flood, so that's likely what it is. But you need to think donkey and Old Testament and jawbone, and then that'll give you the reminder about, uh, about killing. So... Should bring someone immediately to mind, yes? Yeah, there you go. So in 2010, as part of a small group of helping professionals, I was sent to Virginia to ease the reintegration of ground combat troops returning from Afghanistan. We had 120 service members there for three days. Uh, they did not want to be there. They were not happy to be there. We were the only thing uh, between them and their families, their friends, their motorcycles, and fishing. And, uh, but during that time, we did uh, debriefings, psychological first aid. And we had worship services and, and so forth. And that it was an intense time. I did this uh, any number of times. It was one of my, one of my duties. Uh, To say that it was intense would be an understatement. In small group sessions, uh, there were moments when uh, they were back, some of them, in combat. And I was honored to journey alongside them. After one such session, a young man asked to speak with me in private. Of course, of course, let's talk. He told me what happened, which... I won't share here, only that he had killed an enemy combatant at close range during a mission. Now, research tells us that the rate and severity of PTSD is literally connected to physical distance. And what that means is is that taking a life at, at close range is a singularly intense and disturbing experience. And that's healthy. You don't want to lose that. The man who killed Osama bin Laden, former Navy SEAL Robert O'Neill, said this, and this is why he left the SEALs prior to retirement. 
Like a lot of guys that are still there now, I stopped getting adrenaline when people were shooting. And I knew that they, that could lead to complacency because if I'm not afraid, then I might wind up doing something stupid. I know from other sources that even after killing a person, he didn't have any adrenaline. It's time to get out. Time to, time to leave at that point. Back to my young EOD tech who had been serving with the special forces out there. EOD, that's a bomb guy. They'd been in a firefight and he'd killed someone at close range, so close that he couldn't say, nah, there were three of us shooting at him. You know, maybe there's a chance it wasn't me. No, he couldn't say that. He did it. And after his story, his eyes began to well up and he asked me a question. Does God still love me? And I knew at that moment that I was on holy ground, sacred territory. And as God's representative of the holy to that man, at that moment, I knew that the openness of his wound would hold whatever I poured into it, be it good or bad. With my body language, my tone of voice, the words would become part of his forever story. He didn't need instruction. He needed an embrace. Put my hand on his shoulder and I said, by Based on the authority of the Word of God, not only does God still love you, He never stops. You are safe in His arms. And then, in an abbreviated, compassionate, and non-teaching form, I told him much about of what I'm about to tell you. So if your Bibles are open, if they're not, you can simply look at the front of your bulletin. Uh, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, literally in Hebrew, very terse, only two words. In the King James Version, Exodus twenty thirteen, reads, Thou shalt not kill. Lo tirzach. Sounds kind of Vulcanish. Lo tirzach. Now that's an emphatic, negative imperative rendered in the King James kill. The King James Version, in fact, 49 times in the Old Testament, it's rendered as kill. The word does mean that. However, it means more than that. It means murder. So a more accurate translation would be murder. So consequently, most Newer translations use the word murder. Murder is the intentional, premeditated, malicious taking of another's life. So with that in mind, would it be a mistake to mean that all killing is wrong? Yes, that would be a mistake. Biblically speaking, not all killing is wrong. First, this Hebrew word is not used to refer to animals for sacrifice or for food. It's a different word altogether. In fact, there are uh, several other 
excellent words for kill in Hebrew. This word is not the only one. And this is important. It's important because some people teach that the sixth commandment forbids the taking of any life, and so therefore they use it to require of their denomination or of their group vegetarianism. Uh, and vegetarianism is fine. My, my grandson is a vegetarian. But when you do it based on a, a false understanding of the Word of God, then it's not fine. The killing of animals for food was approved by God following the flood. You can look it up in Genesis 9, 1 through 3. The sixth commandment does not apply to swatting mosquitoes or flies. The commandment is the prohibition against murder. I'll say it again, the intentional, premeditated, malicious taking of another human life, not an animal life. I mean, Scripture even carefully distinguishes uh, between murder, which I've mentioned in terms of its intent, with manslaughter. Manslaughter is the death of another as a result of negligence, which is also uh, nuanced against an accidental killing. You see that in Numbers 25, 22 uh, through 25. And in killing in self-defense, which you see in Exodus 22 and 2. We'll look at some of those a little closer as we go. And second, this Hebrew word is not used in terms of formal punishment in the context of uh, capital punishment in Israel for a crime. So, I mean, the command was never, ever seen by the Hebrews as a prohibition against uh, the death penalty, which they had. And and they usually express that with a phrase, which means to put to death. You also have it stated in Genesis 9, 6, where it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what we see here is that God-ordained government is responsible for the facilitating of good and the restraining of evil. And this responsibility includes individual, it includes national, it includes international, which is why we have standing uh, militaries. And that is to resist forcefully any evil that threatens our uh, people, our uh, nation. Third, the Sixth Commandment does not forbid killing to protect one's uh, family, uh, one's one's life. In fact, in this Exodus 22, 2, which I mentioned before, a homeowner who kills an intruder at night is not subject to capital punishment. It, uh, 22, 2 reads this, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And interesting, the next verse tells us that if it happens during the day then there is. In other words, if a thief breaks in your house in the daylight and you kill that person, then you would be subject to 
the death penalty. Why? Because almost all the communities back there were so uh, small that if it was light, you would know who it was. You could identify the person and then the justice system at that point could take care of it. But at night, you don't know who it is. You don't know what their uh, intent is. And it seems like the sum of this is the protection of a person's right to self-defense. Fourth, it doesn't apply to accidental killings. So we see in Deuteronomy 19.5, where it reads, As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Fifth, killing during battle is not prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. I mean, the term that's used here is never used in the context of war. And and I just want to point out one very common sense uh, thing, that if a person is thoughtful and not ideological, ideologies that are concretized in a person's mind make you think strange ways. But if you're thoughtful and reflective about it, um, in this case, you would quickly conclude that the Sixth Commandment was given to Israel on their way to defeat Canaan. Canaan. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, we see that uh, Paul says the same thing a little later on in the book of Romans. So far from being, I mean, I list all of those things in order to demonstrate that far from being a rigid, unbending system of justice, the law, in fact, is very nuanced. And it's given from a place of grace. And the Lord wants us to know that there is a distinct difference between God's appointed mission for the people to take Canaan and a premeditated act of murder. Now, those who take a different position, which I certainly respect, generally fail to understand the difference between private, public, and and state actions. So, uh, I can't say it better than John and Paul Feinberg. When they said, as a private individual... I may turn the other cheek when unjustly attacked. However, my responsibilities are quite different when I stand as a third party's guardian, as a civil magistrate or parent, because I am responsible for their lives and their welfare. I must resist, even with force, unjust aggression against them, even though I might accept it against myself. Moreover, loving my neighbor or enemy does not mean that I stand idly by while my child is kidnapped or murdered. I am to use whatever force is necessary to protect his or her life and safety. With the point I made earlier, uh, with the context of the Sixth Commandment, we see this actually repeated in a way in 
Romans 13, 9. So what happens is in uh, chapter 13, Paul goes through uh, from the 6th to the 10th commandments. He, he, he walks right through them, and yet only five verses later, he notes that the government has the authority to bear the sword. Uh, that's interesting. Now, why is it interesting? Because the government's ability to bear the sword and the sixth commandment, the prohibition against murder, are in precisely the same context, and yet they stand independent from one another. That should be striking to you if this is something that you've wrestled with. Furthermore, when uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, he reminded his hearers, so let's hear what he actually said here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, you've got to understand something. I mean, this should be obvious, and I'm sure it is, but I just feel it needs to be said anyway. Today, any view of the sword that we have is purely metaphorical and symbolic. I mean, the sword hasn't been used in active life in the United States probably since the Revolutionary War. Now, I know that they carried them in the Civil War, but a lot of them, they couldn't even get them out because the scabbards, they'd never, they didn't practice with them or anything. They were in the age of gunpowder and so forth. But let me just say that in the Apostle Paul's day, the sword meant something entirely different. Now, Paul saw, Paul saw the nation's authority to wield the sword as separate and distinct from the premeditated act of murder. And his, his words serve as a vivid reminder to each one of us that God granted this. This is something that God gave to government. And this authority allows them to punish uh, the wicked obviously defend the country and to liberate those who have been enslaved by wrongdoers. But there's more because the Old Testament isn't the whole of the story. We need to move over to the New Testament where we see this in the first in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about many of the commandments. And in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, he begins to talk about uh, thou shalt not uh, murder. He said, you have heard it said, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable for the judgment. But I say to you 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus takes this opportunity to expand the meaning. And specifically, he addresses the subject of sinful anger. Now, we know from other places in the Scripture that it is possible to, to be angry and not to sin. I mean, how does that work? How can Jesus say that if you're angry at your brother, you're liable for the judgment, and yet in another place we know that it's possible to be angry and not sin? I suggest to you that it's the focus. And it's the focus that I believe that God would have as well. Holy anger or righteous indignation is focused upon the sin itself. I think that a misplaced anger is focused upon the sinner. One is focused on the sin, the other one on the person. I mean, Jesus' cleansing of the temple is an excellent example um, of this, where he went through uh, overturning tables and he even uh, made a, a whip. He did not sin in that anger. I know some people argue that he wasn't, he wasn't angry, but I, I find that that's uh, too weak to even mention. But John echoed Jesus' condemnation when he wrote this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So this, this anger, this unholy, unrighteous anger, when focused on people, tends not simply to be sin, but it moved, moves toward the breaking of the sixth commandment. So this is... This is a uh, this is one of those things that's important that people don't get very much, and that is murders do not begin as acts of violence. Murder begins with attitudes. Murder begins with anger and intentions of the heart. That is the intentional malicious, premeditated act of murder is carried out in the heart before it's carried out in reality. It's already done. So how does this apply to us? The first, I mean, the obvious, the most obvious is the sixth commandment forbids murder. Uh, and it is very clear that while one may uh, escape the, the law of the land, uh, one will not escape uh, the justice and the judgment of God. But there's actually more to it than that. The sixth commandment forbids indirect murder. You know, indirect murder, what in the world is that? I think uh, Packer, uh, J.I. Packer points this out when he says this. It is grievous to see how crimes against the person, he talks about mugging and, and uh, bombings and so forth, have increased in supposed Christian communities and countries, while in the same places, brainwashing and interrogation by 
torture have established themselves as standard resources. And he says, had the sixth commandment been pondered, that none of this would be. And what Packer was trying to make an observation about was this. Acts of cruelty or unjust violence that deprive people of life or their humanity is that God had intended for them is breaking the spirit of the law. So the first one, murder, you're breaking the letter of the law. The second one, by Packer, you're violating the spirit of the law. The third one is unseen murder. And that's what Jesus was referring to. Namely, the sinful anger and hatred that resides in our hearts that doesn't result in an outward act but an inward attitude is something that we carry with us. I mean, John, again, said this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who has not seen his brother, whom he, has not, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So we see that the sixth commandment forbids murder in all its forms. Uh, murder, murder indirectly through cruelty and violence, and also through this invisible thing, uh, anger and hate. And so, while we think, okay, well, why specifically was this given? I mean, we say, of course. I mean, there you cannot take another person's uh, life, and uh, and yet I want to give you a few. Uh, a few reasons, perhaps we could call them that, for this commandment. One is human life is God's gift. And because it's from God, it is His to give and to revo- uh, revoke. Job 12.10 tells us, In His hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Second, human life is sacred. We are created in the image of God. Genesis 9, 6, we read this before. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Third, human life has eternal value. Jesus says this, he says, what good is it if a, if a man, if he gains the whole world and yet he forfeits his soul? There's something in human life that is beyond this life, that is beyond the possessions, that is beyond the things that bring glory to a person here. Fourth, and we're all familiar with this one, loss of human life, particularly through... Murder, violent crime, things along those nature, it brings grief, profound grief. In Acts 8.2, we see how godly men buried Stephen. And it didn't, say that they, it didn't just say that they mourned for him. It says that they mourned deeply for him. Fifth, murder defiles the land. In Numbers 35, 33, it says, Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement 
cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. And finally, at least in this little list, is Satan's work. Jesus said that devil, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. John eight forty four. So a lot of those are teaching points. And you'll forgive me for having taken that mode. Otherwise, honestly, the subject would be too difficult for me to preach. But we should look a little more uh, into the heart here. So what shall we take home with us? First, very few among the family of God have ever committed murder. And I thank God for that. However, Jesus tells us that the law's intent is to stop the anger and hatred before it explodes into murder or any other type of harm. And when we take our anger and we feed it and think about it and we indulge in it, Jesus says that we're flirting with murder. If we have sufficient outrage in our hearts, we have in fact broken the law at this point. I would say that not this is we're not talking about a simple anger. I don't think Jesus was referring to that at all. You get mad at somebody who cuts you off in traffic, uh, you have not violated the sixth commandment. He's talking about the kind of hate, the kind of anger that makes you want to end someone else, metaphorically or in actuality. Now, I rarely get anger, angry, and I, I don't hold grudges. And you can ask uh, my wife about this. Uh, she'll tell you the truth. Wait, that was the truth, right? Okay. <laughs> As if her, it would be something different. But I do want to say this. that There's one man's journey that's reflective of mine in at least one incident. Uh, certainly I wouldn't compare myself with him in others. Sergeant Desmond T. Doss. Some of you will know his name immediately. He's an intensely religious member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which has had and does now have a uh, rich history of discouraging uh, the bearing of arms, more pacifistic in, in nature. And in uh, fact, during World War II, he did not. Uh, but nevertheless, even without bearing arms, he saved the lives of upwards of a hundred men on a place called Hacksaw Ridge in Okinawa. As Medal of Honor, if you know anything about his story that he received for these actions, uh, said that he saved 75 men. I love the story because the army said it was upwards of a hundred. Actually, they had a number over a hundred. But Doss himself said, well... It, it couldn't have been more than 50. 
Yeah, but we have the people on the litters. We counted them, you know. No, it couldn't be that way. So they struck a deal and said 75. (laughs) So that's what it says on his Medal of Honor. However, I don't know if you watch the movie closely or listen to his story closely. Uh, in, In that case, you know... That the real energy, listen to this, the real energy behind Doss's refusal to carry a weapon into battle, the religious reasons were second. And you need to know that. You need to know that it wasn't primarily a theological argument that he made or a church teaching that he followed so that he wouldn't do this. This was dramatized when he was sitting in a foxhole on Okinawa during a lull in the battle and his commanding officer was sitting in the foxhole with him and he said, why do you refuse to carry a rifle? This is in the midst of the battle. And Doss said this. He said, said, my daddy used to beat me and my brother just because the sun came up and he'd whip us just because it set. He said, I could take that. But when he would do it to our mama? And then there was a flashback. And in that flashback scene, Doss's father had struck his mother, knocking her down with a gun in his hand. And Doss came at that moment and fought with his father. The gun goes off, but he's able to get and wrestle the gun away from his father. And he points it at him right between the eyes. And his father, a World War I vet who suffered severe PTSD, just simply said, Pull the trigger! Pull the trigger. His commander said, but you didn't kill him. And after a long pause, Desmond said, in my heart, I did. You need to know that so did I. I violated in a very real way as Jesus spoke the sixth commandment. And thank God for the forgiveness that only he can provide. You see, none of us are that far from this. A tweak here, a poke there, a change in context, and we're all capable of that kind of hate. Now, the young man I spoke to had a long journey in front of him. He wasn't filled with hate or even anger, only remorse. But until that moment, he had not understood or fully recognized that the prohibition was against murder. And he was no murderer. But he did kill And I can say with confidence that that day, at least at that moment, 
he was thankful as he left. So if giving one's life is the highest sacrifice a nation can ask of its citizens, I think taking a life for the nation must be second. But as it relates to us in our lives, set aside anger and hatred. We'll all get angry. We will. It just happens. But do not nurse it. Don't let it settle in in your life. Don't let it become hatred because that's a slippy, slippery slope that, that if you go far enough down it, you're only recovered by the grace of God. So let us set it aside. Let us come to God and seek His forgiveness and His mercy and His grace through Christ. Father, we, we are delighted at Your greatness and Your glory. We're thankful that even in the law, there is nuance, there is understanding, there is grace. We pray, Father, that as we go through our lives, that we would be able to steer clear of this commandment. And Lord, one way to not fall into the prohibition is to realize that that it does mean something to us. It's not something, ah, I never did that, I don't need to worry about it. Lord, it's, it's closer to us than that. And allow us to shove it aside, push it aside through your power, set it aside, not let it fester. If we're angry at someone today, Lord, just let it evaporate through the power of your Spirit from our hearts, even at this moment, through Christ our Lord. Amen.